This interview was recorded by Lieutenant Commander Tuck, Deputy Keeper of the National Aeronautical Collection at the Science Museum, on April the 16th, 1970, with Air Commodore Banks. Good afternoon, Air Commodore Banks. Very nice of you to come over and make a recording for the archives of the Science Museum, uh, especially as uh, this year, 1969-70, you're the President of the Royal Aeronautical Society, I thought this was an eminently suitable occasion for you to recount some of your more personal experiences. I believe your experience uh, with engines and such like go back a very long way. In fact, before the First World War, 1914-18. Yes, really, I was brought up as a child with uh, motor car engines because my father which uh, drove one of, probably one of the half dozen motor cars in this country in the 1890s and went over to America in 1898 and bought up some steam car chassis and ran one in the um, a thousand miles trial in 1900 and got an answer certificate. Further, of course, he was friendly with Cody and supplied the old man with bits and pieces for his aeroplane. And then he took me over to, uh, about the same period, to the first international air meeting at Rounds in France. And um, uh, I was able to see aeroplanes uh, in fair numbers. That would be about 1909? That was 1909. And he was a friend of uh, Henry and Morris Farman, and so I was given a lot of privileges that probably a young boy would not normally have had. Uh, and your age about that time, by my calculation, would have been about 9 or 11. Nine, 11 years 11. old. I was born in 1998. I see. And uh, then, I, then I was hoping to have the first flight of 1909, but Henry Farman wasn't able to do it to me on the day available. And I got my first flight at Hendon in 1913, uh, peculiarly enough, with his, uh, Henry Farman's chief test pilot, a man called Chevy Yard. What was the machine? Farman? That was a Farman, a Henry Farman machine. I see. Uh, and uh, how did you first get professionally, shall we say, involved in uh, engines or mechanical? Well, I left school at 14, and I went up to a, a refrigeration plant, a refrigerating plant in uh, Lowstock, and started an apprenticeship there, and later went to J.W. Brook of Lowstock, who made motor launches and also made the engines for them. And that's where I took lessons on engine design from Stanley Rose, the chief designer of uh, Brook. And then, of course, the war came when I was 16 and a half, but I only had two and a half years of apprenticeship. And I couldn't get in the Royal Flying Corps because they seemed to want a birth certificate when I was underage. What was the minimum age required? 
far as I know it was 18, but uh, they didn't accept me anyhow 16 and a half. And nor did the Royal Naval Air Service. And so I took a chance and put my age up to 18 and joined the Navy as uh, deckhand or first petty officer, first staff, perhaps, but I didn't tell to start. The Navy didn't ask you any indelicate questions about <coughs> The Navy didn't ask me a single question about my age after, uh, didn't question my age after asking him. I see, and then uh, this was war experience. In what sort of boat? Well, firstly, we were in some motor launches that were serving, serving the minesweepers at sea with sailing orders, etc., from low stuffed. And then I went as a deckhand on a minesweeper and was uh, minesweeping and patrolling until 1916 when I was given a commission in the RNVR as a subaltern. Naturally, you were commissioned as an engineer officer. No, I wasn't, funnily enough. Uh, I was still a deck officer. And after that, was sent to the Suez Canal Zone, where I looked after a number of boats from the engine point of view, but I had command of one boat. That's an executive officer. That's an executive officer. That must have been a very interesting experience. Now, was it round about that time that you made your first contact to uh, aviation wire? Yes, I did, because I got to know the people at Portside, uh, the RN uh, seaplane base at Portside, and um, they were short of an engine man, and I became a sort of assistant engineer officer to the engineer officer on the base. Was this on an official basis or unofficial basis? Well, local official basis, but certainly not admiralty appointment. I see. And uh, did this arouse any desire to make closer acquaintance with aircraft? Oh, well, yes, because... Yes, because ever since I went to rounds and had my first flight and tried to get into the uh, air services at the beginning of the war, I was certainly very keen on flying. And this was a mixture of flying and engineering, where I helped look after engines, which were sunbeams and gnomes. And also, I was on occasion an observer uh, in uh, uh, for flying up the coast. Uh, you were actually in flight as an observer, yeah. in an official capacity. Yeah. Oh, very interesting. <coughs> and how long did your association with this aviation side you were... Well, I was brought back to home waters at the end of 16, and I was given command of a motor launch, they were called MLs in those days, on anti-submarine patrol, and that went on through most of 1917. I was in the North Sea, mainly based out of the time. Out of the time. And you cast a long time. I see. Then, at the beginning of six, uh, at the beginning of 1918, because I understand the Grand Fleet was still expecting the uh, German 
was to come out again, they hadn't released our own officers for training in submarines, and they asked for volunteers, purely officers uh, for volunteering as watchkeeping officers, and I went for a short period. Do you period. mean deck watchkeeping or engineer watchkeeping? Deck watchkeeping. Deck watchkeeping. Uh, in submarines, and uh, I was placed uh, at Harwich for that purpose, but we were only on the job for a month or six weeks. Uh, but in that time, I've had a bit of experience on engines because they found out I knew something about them, and they were not always very reliable, the diesel engines on this. So that nothing those days, so I did help the engineer, artificer engineers on board on this engine work. That brought you up to um, the war. What happened after the war? Did you get back onto the mechanics? Well, after the war, I realized that I hadn't had a full apprenticeship, but having a false age, having given a false age, at the beginning of the war, it inferred at least between four and five years' apprenticeship. And um, I then tried to get into the aero engine side of the business, of aviation, but didn't really know anybody of uh, influence. And uh, one day I saw an advertisement in the engineer, or engineering, I forget which, Asking for somebody who had diesel experience for installing diesel engines in ships in the Newcastle on Tyne area and taking them away as guarantee engineer. And while I'd worked a little bit on diesel engines, I knew nothing about installing them, but I got the job and went all around the world for the small firm naval architecture. Doing this job. I see. About what time did this employment cease on that job? 1924, it was from 1924. I see, so it was 1924. Then I believe you made another change. Well, still having my eye on uh, aero engines, I saw an advertisement in uh, one of the same journals, one of the same journals, for uh, somebody with diesel experience to come and uh, develop an airship engine and convert it from petrol to diesel. And this uh, came from uh, Peter, this advertisement was put in by Peter Hooker Limited, who were one of the original licensees of the Nome Lerone engine in this country. In fact, they take the license for the Nome engine as far back as 1913, and they had got an overflow of work from Farnborough when Farnborough during the war had been told they couldn't compete with the aircraft industry in uh, designing and building engines and aeroplanes. And so a lot of the experimental work that would normally have been at Farnborough went to Peter Hooker. Oh, I see. And this was a very large airship engine which was intended to take the place of the Beardmore engines in the R-101. That's the tornado. Yeah. Um, 
Ramadate that time, this, I understand this is where your interest in fuel, which you asked if you were to make quite a name for yourself, just arose. Yes, that's, uh, that's correct. Uh, this engine, which might interest you, uh, was a six-cylinder, vertical six-cylinder engine, giving about 1,500 horsepower, um, and driving about a 20-foot airship propeller on a direct drive, no, no reduction gears at all. And it had cylinders of 12 inches bore by 16 inches stroke. And at quite a moderate compression ratio of 5 to 1, even with four sparking plugs a cylinder, it used to detonate and pre-ignite its cylinder heads off practically. And so it interested me in trying to get a fuel that would uh, stop the detonation and pre-ignition at such a relatively low compression ratio. And it so happened at that particular time, in about 1926 or 27, I think 26, Farnborough had made experimental quantities of tetraethyl lead, and I was allowed to have some to see whether I could stop the knock on the single cylinder unit which we were running in line, in parallel, with the full scale engine. And of course this it did, and eventually we got some more fluid, American-made fluid from the States through Farnborough, and uh, I did quite a lot of running on the single cylinder, but there wasn't enough fuel to run the complete engine on, although at that time we were then preparing a single cylinder for running as a diesel, preparatory to... Uh, Dieselizing, whatever you like to call it, the uh, full-scale engine. I see. Well then, I, I think that uh, you, you really came into prominence in the 1929 um, Schneider Trophy races when they were running into trouble, fuel-wise, in the Rolls-Royce engines. Yes, well that's... Uh, when Peter Hooker folded up, which they did in 1928, I was asked by the Anglo-American Oil Company, as it then was, which you know now as ESSO, to come to them as uh, their aviation engineer, because they hadn't got anybody to do anything about engines or aero engines. And uh, I previously helped Napier on uh, some sparking blood bothers and uh, exhaust valve troubles that they'd had on the Schneider engine for the Venice, uh, Schneider Trophy of Venice, which was the first time uh, an official team was put in for that, uh, put into that contest by the government here through the high-speed flight, the RAF high-speed flight. And uh, when uh, I went to uh, the Anglo-American Oil Company, the decision had just been made that, by the Air Ministry that the uh, Napier Lion probably had rather limited development, further limited development mm -hmm. in it. Potential within the future. Potential, yes. And uh, 
they had asked Earl's Royce whether they would uh, build an engine uh, for the next contest in line with Napier. The next contest, which was 1929. 1929. And we having won the earlier contest, it had to be held in this country. Yes, we were then the defenders. And uh, it wasn't. It was uh, quite a few months before I was called up to Rolls. Although I'd been up to Rolls on fuel matters generally a number of times, but I wasn't called in on the Schneider Trophy job until a month or two before the actual race, when the Rolls had trouble with uh, the fuel. Oh, they thought it was fuel trouble in getting overheated engines because they were using straight benzol in their, in their R engine. They were using uh, a fuel, just straight benzol. A straight benzol. That's and this tended to overheat and they had our distortion and uh, burning or leakage of exhaust valves after relatively short runs. I see. What was your solution to that problem? Well, the only thing we could do at the time was really a very quick fix, as they might say in America, and that it was to dilute the benzol with um, the leaded fuel uh, and uh, just reduce the quantity of benzol used, which was uh, then about uh, from 100% we reduced the benzoyl to about 70%. What did you use for that reason? Just uh, a straight aviation grade petrol with lead in it. Why did you put the lead in? Well, to increase the mark rating of the petrol and uh, in cutting the amount of benzoyl we decided that might be advisable but we had no time to do any real experiments. The only thing I can say about it is that it worked. Well, that's the main thing. And they ran through their their official air ministry tests without further bother, which was really one hour at full throttle. That was about 1,850 horsepower, that engine. I see. Now, that would be the 1929. (coughs) So I suppose when they came along to the 1931, you were brought into the... Seen right from the start. Yes, I was. Uh, after the hiatus, when the then government decided they couldn't afford to go in for the further defender Snyder Trophy. Lady Houston came to the rescue. Oh yes, she came to the rescue and shamed them into it by offering a hundred thousand pounds towards expenses of the development. And then we only had relatively few a month or two to uh, get the engines ready. And Mitchell, the designer of the S6, wanted more power, quite obviously, because he knew he was up against at least one Italian machine that would be pretty fast. And uh, what he asked for was as much as we could give him. Rolls offered him about 23 150 horsepower from the original 1850 or 29. Because I understand that engine was developed from the buzzer, but it was relatively small horsepower. 
Well, the buzzard was an engine originally called the H or buzzard engine. It was about 850 horsepower, and Rolls Royce developed the uh, strengthened up the bits and pieces, and uh, I put a large blower on it to get it up to about 1850. And I think, in the case of the 31 engine, that we can say the fuel contributed a bit to the improvement in power of the engine. Uh, the correct technical sort of description of fuel and engines is that, that uh, an engine permits, uh, the fuel permits an engine to give power. It doesn't give more power, but in this case, we got a bit more power because the, 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 the amount of supercharge is very high, and therefore the temperature of the inlet was very high to the cylinders, and I decided that it might help if we put a little alcohol in it, so that the high latent heat of the alcohol reduced the uh, cylinder temperature, the uh, inlet temperatures, and this accounted for about a hundred horsepower, which they were short of when we used my original 29 race fuel as a sort of a reference fuel. I see. That's most interesting. A sort of Banks cocktail. Well, we used the 29 fuel, the diluted benzoyl fuel, as a reference fuel to see what the further boosted engine would give. And it gave about 2250 roughly. And they were short about 100 horsepower. I believe they were up to something like... um, 72 inches. <coughs> yes. Well, now, that leads us after this uh, triumph of sharing in the Snyder Trophy uh, winning of 1931, uh, I believe you were brought into the scene again at the beginning of World War Two. Yes. Uh, of course, between the Schneider Trophy um, and the beginning of World War Two, a number of us concerned with fuels were, uh, were trying to educate the uh, services up to using high anti-knock fuels and to introduce to the, uh, the Shell and the Esso companies leaded fuel in the form of 87 octane fuel. And then by the time the war started, a hundred octane fuel became available from America, and uh, the, our fighter command uh, machines had a hundred octane fuel pretty well from the start. So that occupied a lot of my time between uh, up to the war period because I was going to all the engine companies and watching the running and seeing how we could cure burnt exhaust valves, which were. Lived due to tetris of lead, and uh, a lot of development was done to uh, improve the valve life of engines. I believe we were using the aromatic fuel around about that time, or did they come in just after the war? Well, we were using aromatic fuels before we really used leaded fuel, because the original airman's specification fuel after the First World War was really a 20% benzoyl mixture in uh, aviation petrol, 
And that lasted up until about the mid-thirties, and then we got the first lady killed in of about 90. I can't remember dates, but about 1936, we had 87 outbreaks killed. I see. Would you say the, the um, Americans were ahead on these high-ranking anti-nuptials, or what has come to Oh, no, the Americans did all this. Uh, their requirements, particularly since they had a performance of their conveyance that was sensitive to fuels, um, they wanted fuels that were, at any rate, ins uh, relatively insensitive to temperature. So they rather kept away from aromatics and used uh, straight-run fuels of Californian origin or something like that that responded well to additions of tetraethyl lead. That's in other words, they would accept the... And then, of course, they're enormous refining capacitors and uh, refinements that were going on in the base petrols or gasolines, as the Americans call them, resulted in 100-octane uh, fuel being produced. And it, uh, 87 octane and then 100 octane, and we benefited very definitely and directly from this American development. I see. As That's was, of course, tetraethyl lead in American development. Yes, I understand that was American development. Well, that brings us up to the beginning of uh, World War II, and here again, I suppose you were called upon to get into the more or less official side. Well, when the World War II started, Air Marshal Freeman and Air Marshal Tedder uh, asked me whether I'd like to join the Royal Air Force and help them on uh, technical matters. And at first, although I agreed naturally, uh, they didn't quite know what to put me on. And, uh, but I was eventually sent to Boscombe Down uh, to see what possible bothers there might be in uh, the various aircraft that were being tested there, the power going into production for war purposes. And so I was there, Boston down from about October 1939 until the end of May 1940. Uh, and then one day I was asked to go and see Lord Beaverbrook who wished me to sort out a bit of a mess on engine accessories such as magnetos and carburetors, which hadn't been expanded up in production as had the uh, aero engine side with, uh, through the shadow scheme, through the shadow scheme uh, with the uh, Motor car manufacturers. You mean they've made provision for a large scale expansion of the engines proper, yes. but have neglected to do the same sort of expansion on the accessories, magnetos, carburetors, things like that? Yes, well, funnily enough, they seem to have done. Whether it was not thought of or whether they thought the magneto people and carburetor people could automatically expand themselves up without shadowing the uh, equipment, I don't quite know. 
we didn't really shatter the equipment. Uh, we had to expand them up and and distress them also because they were very vulnerable, all the BTH people being in the middle of Coventry and some in rugby, and uh, Rotax, of course, being smack in the middle of Wilson. I see. But um, that, I believe, led to a further responsibility. Well, then, uh, uh, we, uh, I was, after we got the Directorate of Production and Development of Engine Accessories going, I was asked to take over as Director General of Engine Production. That would be about 1941 or 42, I really can't remember at the moment. And there I was in charge of engine production, propeller production, and uh, my old department of made engine accessories, uh, controlled engine accessories. Uh, so you were responsible for production but not development? As product, uh, yes, responsible for production, not development. And that lasted until 1943, when we were having a good deal of difficulty in getting production Sabre engines through test. And uh, eventually, I was given the job of getting the Sabre engine right. And... Um, so I combined production with development for the first time, so far as I was concerned. And then after we'd more or less got the saber on the rails again, uh, the government decided to nationalise power jets, and it was made into Power Jets R&D Limited and Roxby Cox. Uh, now Lord Kings Norton was managing the first managing director of parties. This was, of course, uh, Whistle, Frank Whistle's concern. Yes, he uh, was more or less technical director of parties. And before that, it was a private venture, but yes. sponsored by the government. Oh, sure. Yes. Uh, and then it was well, taken over and given contracts. Well, then I was asked, in view of that, I was asked to take over the development, uh, relinquish my position as Director General of Engine Production, uh, which had then reached its peak and we were not wanting any greater number of any particular engine produced. Piston engines, yes. And so I took over the development of piston engines and gas turbines to put the latter in the body of the Kirk as uh, Sir Wilfred Freeman, who was then said. And that was, what he meant was to get it into the legitimate era in Mainstream industry. Yes. Yeah. I see. So that would have brought you in close contact with the early development of gas turbines in this country. Yes, well, as from about 1944, I can't speak before that, I'd seen it, seen the gas turbine, the Whittle turbine, but I hadn't been concerned with it. But from 1944 onwards, I was very much the turbine development. You have been concerned with the Goblin then? Yes. Uh, and the Rolls-Royce uh, Derwent? Derwent, Neen, and Tay. Uh, 
the first Avon, which was called the AJ-65, which was for the Mosquito Replacement, which you probably know as the camera. Well, seeing you were concerned very early in the gas turbine development and the introduction of the engines into service, I'm sure you must have one or two little interesting anecdotes of the early days, if you recall. Well, I don't know whether I have anecdotes, but one important thing that uh, we did do was that uh, since a state-of-the-art had yet to be built up in the gas turbine field, we always ordered two engines for the same requirement uh, when uh, there was a specific aircraft requirement. In other words, we were noted that we ordered the Dart engine, the propeller turbine, and we also ordered the Mamba engine from uh, Armstrong City. Armstrong City. Now, the Dart had uh, centrifugal superblowers, compressors, and the Mamba had uh, axial compressor. And what we really want to see on small engines of around 1,000, 1,200 horsepower as to which would be <coughs> the better from a point of view of cost of production and robustness in uh, operation and maintenance. I don't know whether we ever proved it, because it so happened that the Dart went into a machine that was popularly popularly, uh, popularly accepted uh, by count, and the Mambo went into the Armstrong, which was Apollo, which uh, uh, never went further than the prototype. But the Mamba in double Mamba form, that's to say, two engines not geared together but driving one half of the contradame propeller, went into a naval machine called the Terry Gallic. But the Mamba was a very good little engine, and I couldn't say that it wouldn't have done as well. But the, the answer is, of course, the Dart found the popular machine, and even today, they're making about, Rolls-Royce is still making about 300 Darts a year. Yes, I, I myself, of course, am an engine uh, specialist, as you might say, and I often felt that a good engine could be marred by uh, an airframe, and yes. uh, a poor engine can be enhanced by a good airframe. Oh, yes, yes. I don't think nowadays you can make a poor engine. It may start off poor, as the Dart did, very poor. But it was developed up into a very successful engine. Again, uh, when we ordered the AJ-65, which was the really the forerunner of the Avon series at Rolls-Royce, we also ordered from Metrovic the F9, which you know is the Sapphire. Now the F9 was uh, uh, because Metrovic were not so experienced on uh, air engine building, but were very experienced on axial compressors. I decided that the AJ65, being the first axial compressor 
those who are built might be in trouble, so let us have another engine with uh, an axle compressor we knew would be reasonably good, even though the engine itself might not be as good an aero engine. Nice, so a backup project. Yes, well that was done, in fact, and because Metrovic had kind of been slow in developing an engine in Rolls Royce, I asked them to make it a little bit more a bit larger in size, uh, air, breathing more air than the AJ65, which gave 6,500 pounds of thrust. The sapphire, as it became, made by Armstrong in <coughs> Sydney, gave 7,000 pounds of thrust. Okay. And uh, I'm only giving you these illustrations of the Dart and the Mamba and the AJ65 and the sapphire because we were then learning and we hadn't established a true state of the art and we had to make sure that the design and development techniques were developing all the time. So we never just gave one engine for one purpose to one firm. Sounds a very sensible procedure. Now, of course, you couldn't do it because an engine, uh, the cost of an engine a day, the enormous size and air breathing of an engine a day, on a clean sheet of paper, a 40,000 or 50,000 pound thrust fan engine will cost anything between uh, 60 and 100 million pounds to develop. Yes, that's an One other thing I'd like to uh, put to uh, in Commodore Bank is that uh, one of the <coughs> objects we have in great interest in the gallery is the Certification of the first military engine, uh, the Goblin, which yes. of course bears your signature. Yes. And um, is this an indication that the Goblin was more or less, or the, the Havel engines were an advance of the Rolls Royce engine? No, it, it, it was purely that uh, uh, the Havelins wished to have, at any rate, a fully type tested engine and. Uh, Curiously came at the time, and they were able to do a good run on the Goblin, and they got the first type test certificate, but I don't think it indicates anything particular. That's it. It's just Halford, Major Halford. Uh, well, I think Major Halford, like anybody, would have been, would be proud and wanted to have a type test certificate, which was an achievement, certainly an achievement, but I don't think it indicated any particular lead uh, one firm over the other. Mm, I, I'm sure you're right on that. But you couldn't say the same about the ghost because there was no civil well, counterpart of the ghost. Did it, right? Well, there was really, of course. When uh, de Havilland designed the comet and fitted ghosts, we at the ministry were inclined to tell them, you know, well, be prepared to fit a more economical Lighter engine, in, which of course came in the natural they did, they course did. of development in the Avon. The Avon, as you say, yes. <coughs> and uh, I think the ghost was rather heavy and rather thirsty, but you always got to remember these were very early engines. Yes, and, and obviously the Havilands would want to keep it a family affair. Well, naturally they did. And Although they had used Rolls Royce engines, of course, in a great deal of it. Oh, yes. Well, they had to because previously they had made light engines, small engines, small air cooled engines, gypsy series. Uh, and it took 
himself with a little time to convince himself that he was going to go axial, but eventually did go axial. And of course, really the first axial engine he really made was the biggest axial engine then existent. This is the Giant. The yeah. Giant yeah. I believe the Giant was started off as a design for a supersonic. Well, what happened was that I was brought back in the ministry of supplies it then was in 52, and Hawker had got a design going for a supersonic version of the Hunter. It wasn't a Hunter, but it was a supersonic aeroplane to take the place of the Hunter. Just the one they <coughs> call a Hurricane? I've no, it was called, it never had a name. It was called the 1121, that was the type. And Cam was designing it, and they'd even made a mock-up of it. And actually, they hoped that uh, the uh, Air Force would want to buy it as the extension of the Hunter, after the Hunter ran out. Yes. Well, at that time, there was no engine available except the Jaren, so the Howland had been running the, the Jaren and built it first one on their own. So I took the jar on over from the ministry's point of view just to make sure that if the 1121 had uh, gone ahead, we had an engine for it. Uh, at the same time, I encouraged Wells to design a more sophisticated engine in case it went forward, but in the event, the uh, ministry didn't seem to want the 1121. But I might say that if the ministry had got the 1131 then, and with its natural development in the service, and uh, later marks of the 1131, and new, uh, bigger and better engines, we wouldn't have been buying phantoms uh, at this stage. No, I'll have to tell you right. Yeah. This was a rather unusual affair in that the airframe uh, was designed without having an engine in view. Well, to be fair, I think Halford had already promised Cap that they would do an engine or start an engine and, uh, you know, if he did that. But of course, uh, Cam would also sort of indicate the roles that he had got there and and roles were quite keen to build it, but when they saw the thing going nowhere, and indeed Hawker Sydney saw it going nowhere, the whole thing was shut down. What engine would Rolls have had um, if the project had gone forward? Well, it was an engine, uh, quite an advanced engine, because we asked for a, 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 an altitude performance for that engine, rather than a, a static thrust at sea level. We asked that the engine give, with afterburning of course, about 8,000 pounds at uh, the total pause, so 6,000 feet, at, uh, I think it was one and a half Mac, or two Mac, I can't remember now, but that was the specification for the engine. Quite a demanding spec at that time, uh, wasn't it? I think the engine had a Rolls-Royce, the design had a Rolls-Royce number, RB106, or some figure like that. <coughs> but it was quite a advanced thing. I see. Well, I think we've been talking for a long time, and I can only say thank you very much. Well, I hope it's, I hope it's uh, given you the information.
long term long questions uh, I've had to talk with you. Okay. Because I like history. <laughs>